Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today, I am hosting Dr. Marion Mass, who is a co-founder of Practicing Physicians of America. She has been an unbelievable force advocating for patients and for physicians. She advocates for cutting waste, for really lowering the cost of healthcare, and to make it more accessible to the masses and to patients. I've gotten to uh, learn about Dr. Mass through her uh, social media uh, feed, and I've been really very impressed by a lot of things that uh, she had said. So I've invited her to the show, and I really wanted to ask about what can be done what can be actually done to improve on the healthcare situation in America? We can't solve this on today's episode. Many people have tried, and my job here is really not to solve complex problems like this, but I want to make sure that you get to think about some of these issues. What are these issues? What can be done? And what can we do about it? So I really hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Marion Mass. I hope you check out my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, subscribe to the channel, rate, refer colleagues, and write a brief review. And without further ado, Dr. Marion Mass on Healthcare Unfiltered. Well, it's really a pleasure of mine to host Dr. Marion Mass, who uh, I am looking so much forward to meeting her in person, uh, hopefully very soon, but we have gotten to follow her work uh, on social media and, uh, and I'm a big fan. Uh, uh, Marion is uh, the uh, type of physician who would just say it like it is and is not afraid. So because of that, we have her on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast to try to distill why healthcare is a mess. And uh, it's not really a uh, Marion, we're asking you uh, uh, a very um, easy task. Uh, we're going to try to come discuss a few aspects of healthcare and why they are messy and what we're going to do about, that, uh, about them. But before we get started, I want to make sure that folks who are listening to the show know who you are and what you do day in and day out and, and, and so forth. So who is Dr. Marion Mass? <laughs> what a funny question, um, Chatty. Um, so I'm a, I'm a mother, I'm a, a wife, I'm a recovering soccer mom, actually. My kids are almost all out of the nest. I'm a practicing pediatrician in the Philadelphia area. I've practiced in the hospital setting with a lot of ER, neonatology in that hospital setting. I uh, practiced in independent primary care practice, and I'm now in an urgent care situation. So I'm a, I'm a writer, I'm a speaker, I'm an advocate, and I really do think that we can take healthcare and medical care in America, and we can, we can reduce the cost and improve the access at the same time. And I, 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 but I think we're only going to do it until we understand how the system works. We need to, we need to do that before we, we can make it happen. And Marian, just, I mean, just to, to level set a little bit, because, uh, you know, I mean, you go to medical school, you go to residency and all of that stuff. And, and I mean, let's face it. I mean, when I was an intern and you were an intern, probably the last thing on your mind was healthcare as an ecosystem. You were just thinking, I'm going to get my internship, residency, what I'm going to specialize in, what I'm going to work and all of these things, which is 
understandable. Did something happen that started making you think, what is actually going on in the healthcare that made you just think a little bit more broadly than what you were doing at the time? Yeah, um, it, I think it's circumstance for me. So I went to med school in 1990 and did my residency in, in um, Chicago, uh, where you are actually, and then came back to this area and we were having children and I was working mostly nights. And I sort of feel like maybe when my third child got out of diapers, I, I woke up and I'm like, wait a second, what the heck happened here? Like in my training, I felt that, you know, physicians were the primary advocate for the health and medical needs of their patients. And I woke up and like, so maybe one of the sentinel moments was when we were all told that we must have an electronic record system, right? And I remember going to house staff meetings at the hospital where I was a hospitalist and they were giving us the computer order entry, like they were explaining to us how it would look and how it would launch. And I felt like everyone else was asleep at the house staff meeting. And I keep on asking questions. I'm like, this looks like a very unintrinsic system. We're going to have this problem and that problem and so on and so forth. And um, a real like snap me to my feet moment happened when I came in for a shift. I've written about this. It's somewhere on the Let's Rethink This site. There's a blog. I'll try to pull it up for you. But I'm coming in for a seven o'clock shift and my colleague is looking agitated. And she tells me she's got a three-month-old in the ER and the three-month-old um, came in looking very sick. They did the blood cultures, the spinal tap, you know, everything. And they ordered the antibiotics, but it had been two and a half, three hours and the patient didn't have their antibiotics yet. And they looked a little bit better after some fluids. And I'm like, why don't we have the antibiotics? And she said, well, the computer order entry had gone live that weekend. And over the weekend, um, we were, they were not allowing any orders to get filled unless they came through the CPO, the computer order entry. Wow. So pharmacy wasn't like, even though pharmacy knew, and, you know, I said, you know, have you called pharmacy? Well, they, they refused to do it. And I, I kind of snapped. I thought to myself, you're letting a bunch of administrators get in the way of your patient. And I also, to tell you the truth, I was kind of disappointed that like it, it had been two and a half, three hours and I'm the first person doing this, but I, called the pharmacy and um, I, I pulled the, the charge nurse or wherever it was over to me. And I said, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say to the pharmacist. And I, you know, call it God, whoever was the head at that point, it was a Sunday night. So whoever's the most senior. And I said, do you have the ability to mix up these antibiotics? Yes. But I said, I didn't say, but you're going to mix them up because if you don't, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell the charge nurse who's standing in front of me to call the hospital CEO and let the hospital CEO know that I'm about to walk into the room for the patient and tell them that they're getting substandard care because someone made a stupid administrative rule and is preventing their child from getting something that's necessary for them. And they can fire me if they want, but that's how it's going to roll. And I didn't, I don't think I used the word stupid. <laughs> Not at all. Oh. But I, I drew the line in the sand. I, you know, I'm, and I said to the charge nurse, you make sure like I'm going to let the hospital CEO know that I'll encourage the parents to call the press and let them know what's going on here. So can I have my antibiotics or not? And I got the antibiotics like 15 minutes later, but I thought to myself, why was no one, they were standing for the rule. They weren't standing for the patient. And it turned out that the child was not septic, thankfully, but if they had been, and their antibiotics had been delayed. It's it's not a good clinical situation, but yeah. we're all supposed to follow the rule. And, and I, 
I remember thinking at the time during my training, during residency, during med school, like it was almost though as I sort of woke up and, and felt like, wow, we're not the ones that are now the, that are the primary advocates for the medical needs of our patients. We're letting someone else usurp that role. And that is so wrong. So I, yeah, it, it was a sentinel moment. Marion, I kind of feel, and, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. I, can, I kind of feel that a lot of physicians who are practicing and have, and, you know, seeing patients have gone through various moments in their clinical career where they realized how stupid the system could be, right? From prior authorization to an example that you just provided to uh, many things. I can recount things and you can recount things. But I kind of feel everybody is busy doing their own thing and they deal with that problem that happens and they just move on. They may bitch about it sometimes or just like tweet about it sometimes, but they feel like they're too busy they're just going to move on. They don't have time to fix it. You chose a different avenue and you, you asked yourself, what can I do because of these things that kept happening? What did you do? Like, what are the steps that you took and, and, and what made you decide I'm going to be a real advocate? I'm not going to really turn. I'm not going to turn the other cheek. It, it was things like that that kept on happening all along. But, you know, this has been a long journey. So, for instance, when that happened, I started looking at getting involved in, you know, in advocacy. And I looked at what was existing in advocacy, you know, like national organizations like the AMA that to me are tied to insurance companies and are tied to pharma and are tied to government across the aisle. And I sort of felt like, well, that's not going to be it. And then I was looking at grassroots organizations that were national that you know, purported to try to fix the medical system. And a lot of those grassroots efforts, they seem to be partisan, one side or the other, you know, like, so um, it, it, it was either doctors for Obama or like a group that was like against Obamacare, you know, like, so people divided across the aisle, which is really silly because across the aisle, the insurance companies aren't dividing. <laughs> the big hospital systems aren't dividing. Big pharma is not dividing. The AMA is not dividing. They're smart enough to like pay off across the aisle. But as grassroots groups, others were dividing. So um, I, I came up with the idea of um, building a grassroots physician organization. So in 2017, in February, at the Library of Congress, we launched Practicing Physicians of America. And we are now six on our board. And we, are, um, we crossed the aisle. We cross specialties, we cross the country, and we agree on a lot of, of things. Like we've discovered, it doesn't matter if you're an R or a D, if you're finding things where you're looking to reduce cost and waste in healthcare, you can find a lot of agreement. It's going to be a big pushback on the special interests that are making the money in healthcare, but- What's your mission statement, BPA? Uh, my gosh, I'd have to like- it's so embarrassing for me to say this. I'd pull up the thing. We're looking to reduce the unnecessary obstruction that keeps a physician from being the primary medical advocate for their patient. Let us practice as we were trained. And how many members do you have now? I think PPA is a couple thousand. I'm not the person that like, <laughs> I'm more the person involved in the writing and such. But the other strength of PPA is, is that in 2019, 
because they had been working and looking at reducing healthcare waste and cost, I someone suggested, you know, you should write a position paper. And so I got together with physician experts and we wrote reducing cost in waste and healthcare, a physician-led roadmap. And we we very upfront took the position, we don't want to talk about repeal of Obamacare. We don't want to talk about Medicare for all. Those are non-starters. Talk about individual things that you that we can do in advocacy that can change our system and allow patients and physicians to have more control. And you know, we we had five um, particular subtopics, drug pricing and uh, drug shortages, the need for transparency, because no one's looking where the money is going, um, the need for better innovative models of delivery and payment, the need for better models of charity in healthcare. Like how do we get patients that are you know, truly vulnerable and needy you know, what they need? You know, because a lot of them aren't having access through Medicaid. And then lastly, how do we reduce the physician shortage? So we came up with 34 actionable legislative asks. And it's interesting because I've had you know, people in Congress say to me, well, physicians are going to love this. Patients are going to love this. And the people that are making money are going to hate this. And that's how you know when you're on the right track. Yeah. So then what happened was because I was part of PPA and the other experts writing the paper were part of other organizations, groups came together and we sort of organically formed the free to care coalition. So now we're 32 member groups, they're patient and physician advocacy group. There's a group of pharmacists in there. I'd love to have like a group of nurses that would you know consider joining, but altogether those 32 groups they're agreeing with the ideas in that position paper on those five topics. And we now are uh, 8 million citizens and 70,000 of those are, are physicians. So um, that's amazing. 8 million citizens. Well, there's a, a couple large uh, groups of patients. So yeah. yes. Yeah. Like there's actually, there's two senior groups, uh, 60 plus and association of mature American citizens that they make up the bulk of our numbers. And, you know, to be frank about it, like AMAC tends to be a right-leaning group, but their ideas in healthcare are very down the middle of the aisle. You know, so their ideas in healthcare are for transparency, which 85% of all Americans want. They're for more direct care models as, as, you know, as we agree, that's why they agree with our ideas. They're, They're for getting rid of the obstructive influence of, you know, I call them the middlemen the insurance companies, the pharmacy benefit managers. Yeah. So, so let, let's go over a couple of things that you you and your colleagues wrote in that position paper. And if mm-hmm. you send me a link, I want to put that in the podcast notes to make sure that folks are able to click on it and read it if it's available. But uh, let's go over this, where the money is going. I mean, um, how do you, how, I don't know, how do you figure out where the heck the money is going? Well, I don't think you can figure out where the money's going until you like, until people are transparent with their prices. And look at the fight. I mean, you've heard this over the past year and a half about transparency or two years. So I'm I'm kind of proud of the fact that one of our organizations, Patient Rights Advocate, has been a staunch advocate of price transparency, as have we all within the Free to Care Coalition. And now we have two U.S. presidents that are pushing on transparency. Our last, you know, former President Trump 
um, did an executive order on pricing transparency, like Trump or hate him. That was one of the most remarkable things that could happen in healthcare. You know, isn't it crazy that we go to a hospital and we don't know what we're going to pay until it's all over? So, you know, like the insurance companies are busy with the hospital business people behind closed doors negotiating separate rates and not just separate rates with separate payers, but separate rates for separate carriers. So if you are employed by person X and someone else is employed by person Y, they may be paying a different amount, even if you have the same big healthcare insurance. I mean, so if, if, if we don't even know what things are costing and then the higher costs are driving up everyone's premiums and then everyone is continually paying more. So, you know, that was one of the big things we asked for. And I'm delighted that the Biden administration, they're doubling down on that transparency. You know, so uh, the Trump administration came along and said, I think it was like $300 a day for hospitals that are not posting their prices. Well, that's a drop in the bucket. That's chump change to some of these big hospitals. So like, I think it was something like 80% of them were not posting their prices. Of course, they're not going to post the prices. And then they sued to not post their prices. I mean, how ridiculous is that? We're suing to not tell you how much it's going to cost for you to have X, Y, and Z. It's amazing, I mean, isn't it? Can't, can't you see who the bad guy is right there? I mean, if you need to like turn it into black and white, uh, the Biden administration came down, I forget the number, but they're increasing the penalty. I think it's fabulous. And you know what else was fabulous? I loved this about what Biden did. When they came out and they said, we're doubling down and we're increasing the penalty for price transparency, they, in the press, it was actually, um, it, it was actually noted that we're doing this and we're, we're agreeing with the Trump administration. I mean, it, it, those two people <laughs> did not like each other, but you could see he was saying, yep, yep, he was right here. He wasn't taking the credit for it himself. He was saying, you know, the Trump administration did this. Now I'm doubling down. So it's almost kind of like a one-two punch, you know, like, so if, if you hated Trump, fine, hate Trump. Although, although you, I, I still feel, I still want whoever is in charge to make it that it's mandatory. You cannot just be fined because honestly, if you think like to your point, to an earlier point, some of these fines could be dropped in the bucket. So the hospitals could say, okay, you know what? We'll pay these fines. We'll calculate what it's like $5 million a year. We'll take the hit and we won't post our prices. And they'll put that in their, you know, in their Excel spreadsheet under the liabilities as one of their expenses, and they'll just move on. I feel I feel you have to make it mandatory or you have to make the penalty painful enough that they just there's no way about it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you can't you 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 tell them, you know, the insurance companies or Medicare, you'll have no contract with Medicare or something, I don't know, something like that. Yeah, I, I guess it's another way to go about it. Although, you know, I said early on in this, patients are going to have to start discovering what's wrong and broken with the system. It should be like a huge red flag to them to have the hospital industry push back on, on being transparent. <laughs> because <laughs> if, if you're trying to hide something, you must have something to hide. It's right? amazing, though, isn't <laughs> like, it? Like, it's amazing. Like, well, we're lobbying to make sure we are not transparent and we're still the good guy. <laughs> Yeah, right. But like, I think what what this does is it brings some essential truth to the patient for them to understand, wait a second, if these people aren't going to be upfront with me, maybe I shouldn't trust them. And maybe I'll take my business elsewhere. 
So I think if the yeah, narrative- that's, that's the problem. The patient doesn't, have, I mean, do you think the patient has the power to take their business elsewhere? I mean, my God, Marion, I mean, like, you know, the patient is held hostage to where the insurance company is going to allow them to go in. And sometimes they even get in the hospital and they get stuck with so many bills because somebody out of network got consulted and they right. went to see them. Like, I feel, I don't know, I, I don't feel the patient in a vulnerable state. Like, it's very different, right? When you're healthy and you know, you're not going to go to a restaurant, you'll take your business elsewhere. But when someone is sick and they have a heart attack or they have a cancer and they need to get treatment, they're not thinking straight, I think. They're going to go wherever they can go. I don't know if they can really take their business elsewhere. Maybe. No, you're right. In some vulnerable situations, there is no choice. And, you know, I, it, it is completely not fair. It is completely unfair. But I think that it, at least pushing on price transparency is a start for patients understanding where some of the money is going. And if you know that the, the cost, I mean... Uh, the um, New York Times just did a piece on this and they were talking about the disparate numbers and I don't have them off the top of my head, but it can vary by thousands of dollars. The cost of a colonoscopy, tens of thousands of dollars in some cases of some procedures or, you know, things that you have done in the hospital. So if patients start to understand, wait a second, they're only paying X, you know, for this particular um, insurance and, then why am I paying so much more? Maybe this is a reason that my premiums are up. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's, I mean, I, it's not perfect. And you're right. There's going to be people that are forced into um, a, a certain situation, but um, it's, a you know, sometimes, it's a start. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. For sure. No, it was, I had written an article about transparency. Oh my goodness. Like last, maybe it was the, it might've even been 2019 could have been the beginning of 2020 time is just so fluid nowadays. But, but I, it was something about the $12,000 strep test. So mm. it was a woman who showed up at a hospital to have a strep test. And it ended up like when the bill came through, she saw that what had been paid was like $12,000. And yeah. it, it was absolutely outrageous, but people are starting to look. So the very fact that, that we're talking about this, now people are looking at their EOBs after the fact and you know, trying to figure out what had happened. I mean, even in small local environments where you would think you would have trust. My daughter played volleyball in high school. And so she came down on her ankle the wrong way one time. And um, it, it was a Sunday. You know, we couldn't get into the primary. Our only recourse was the ER at that point. And we went in and she had her x-rays and um, the nurse came in afterwards. And, you know, the doctor told us there was no fracture. So the nurse said, you know, do you need a an ACE wrap. And um, I said, you know, I, I'll just grab one at the drugstore. She says, I don't think the hospital charges much for the ACE wraps. You know, I, someone's told me that in the past. So she said, I said, great, we'll take the ACE wrap. So she puts the ACE wrap on my daughter, the hospital bill came back. And because I had some deductible, I was paying 300 for the x-rays, almost 300 for the application of the ACE wrap and 37 for the ACE wrap itself. Oh. So I was paying almost as much for the application. And like, I don't blame the nurse. I don't think she knew, but why are you charging that? And I called to complain and they just kept on repeating the same thing, but you have a deductible, you have to pay. And I'm like, <laughs> you don't understand. Like, why are you, what, what do you, what is this ridiculous charge on, on the bill? I mean, patients should really start to take a look when they, when they do have those bills, get them itemized and look at the little minutia. 
because all of that is adding up. And even if it's covered, the insurance company covers it and pays the money to the hospital, then in, in the end, we're all paying more later because everyone's premiums keep going up. For sure. You know what I feel, and, and maybe I'm wrong, I always feel that patients, I mean, including myself, sometimes what you look at is you look at your portion of how much you're going to pay. Mm-hmm. And artificially, you calculate how much that compares to the larger bill. So let's say, I don't know, let's say somebody undergoes an orthopedic surgery. Mm-hmm. And the hospital bill is $45,000, right? That's what the hospital bill is. And you get your, your, your EOB and so on, and you end up that your cost is going to be 450 bucks. So artificially, psychologically, behavioral economics, I look at the $450, I see how little it is compared to the $45,000. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my goodness, I have a great insurance. They paid $45,000. I only have to pay $450. I'll probably pay it in two seconds if I can afford it or call for a payment plan. But it, psychologically, I feel like I'm not going to really complain or question that because, you know, it's an orthopedic surgery. The hospital got the insurance paid so much of it. Do you think that, um, do you think I'm onto something here where there's this like a discrepancy between what is my out-of-pocket cost as a patient as compared to the larger bill where if I see it so minuscule compared to the larger bill, I would just move on and I, I don't really question it as much. I think you're a hundred percent on to something there because like, so the, what the insurance company is saying, see what swell guys we are. We've yeah. really helped you out here because we're behind the scenes negotiating. But yeah. in the meanwhile, like, look, your premiums are going chunk, 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 chunk. And look at like, you know, the position on the fortune 500 of these insurance companies, it's going chunk, 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 chunk. So you've got to figure somewhere if you're paying more at, and those people are making more money, you need to find the profiteers. So how do we fix that piece before we move to the next part? But how do we, like, is there a way, I love the transparency period, right? The phase where you're really posting the prices. Um, I mean, is there, I mean, is there a fix to this particular part? I, I think they have to post the actual cash prices that they'll accept. You know, because like patients that don't have insurance and, you know, and some people do this, they don't have insurance and then they negotiate their cash prices. And it should really be based on, you know, like the manpower that's there, plus, you know, whatever resources that you that you used in the hospital. But I mean, it can't be some kind of like crate. Like if, if, if you see I should come up with numbers for you. Can we do actually can we do a quick timeout? What I what I think is, is, is that if the numbers are all over the board in terms of what a patient is expected to pay or what the insurance is paying on your behalf and you've paid the insurance company, they're saying right there that they're willing to accept lower amounts in some cases. So if they're willing to accept lower amounts in some cases, why are they not willing to accept lower amounts in all cases? And it, it, it's senseless to me that we're thinking, you're right, patients go to that bill and they think, oh, I only had to pay 400, I'm fine but they're not thinking about the downstream costs. Yep. Money has changed hands and gone into the pockets of hospitals in some cases or to physicians in other cases. And it, it may be more money that needed to go there. And because the insurance company paid out more money, they're going to charge you more later down the line, or they're going to charge someone more later down the line. It's all of our money. 
And if you look at the, you know, you ask not just businesses, but the government and the general American worker, wages have been flat for 20 or 30 years now, in part because our healthcare costs have gone up. It's really sad. I talked to, I, I had a conversation with a nurse one time and she was thankful that I was looking at the cost of healthcare. She says, it's, it's ridiculous. I'm paying more, I'm getting less, and I'll never be able to get ahead be- because there's, there's no end to it. The cost of the healthcare keeps on going up. I can't save anything. And I think that's a really dangerous situation for Americans. So do you think, I mean, do you think a Medicare for all is a solution? I mean, Medicare for, for folks who are eligible for Medicare, whether based on age or based on other, other aspects of Medicare eligibility, well, first of all, do you think Medicare has been a successful program? And if so, why can't we, you know, you know scale that up to younger folks? Well, if you look at Medicare itself, are, are you aware what percentage of patients in America have uh, an enhanced Medicare? In other words, Medicare wasn't good enough, so they had to buy a Medigap or a Medicare Advantage. Do you know what percent it is? Or like a supplement, right? Like a supplement? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I actually don't. That's a good question, but I presume maybe 50%? I don't know. 90. No. Yep, 90%. And so so essentially, you say, is Medicare a success? gave the patients that were elderly the peace of mind of feeling like I'm going to be covered, right? But if 90% of them need to buy a supplement, is Medicare itself really working? And by the way, the supplements are run by the private insurers and the, the prescription plans are run by the private PBMs that are like raking in money. And they're not cheap. The supplement is not cheap. Yes. And I'm actually glad you brought up Medicare because that's the one part of the Biden transparency that I wasn't happy about. In April, the Biden administration announced that they were going to do the transparency, but they were going to hold back on the Medicare Advantage plans. But you can't have rules for some and not for all. Like, (laughs) why are they getting their carve out? I mean, some lobbyists must have done their job to get in there and figure that out. Um, but see, I think it's more than just when you talk about doing a Medicare for all, what you're talking about is a, a plan for America that's based on coverage. It, we're going to cover the cost. We're going to cover the cost. And whenever you like you know, coverage itself, unless there's full transparency, the costs are going to remain hidden. And when the costs are hidden, they're going to stay high. So in the current system that we have with private insurers digging into these you know, Medicare supplement plans and with PBMs digging into the prescription portions of them and with the government involved and their little fingers all over the place with the IT portion of them and um, you know, the pharmaceutical involvement and the hospital involvement where you can't really see where the money's flowing. Do I favor Medicare for all right now? No, I think it'll make it a bigger mess. So when people, when people, and I know this probably we're going off topic, but I can't help it. When people, uh, you know, whether on social media or on TV mm-hmm. or wherever, they start talking about other healthcare systems like Canada, Europe, all of these things, and they say, you know, I mean, people are doing fine there, and they're, you know, like whether it's socialized medicine or whatever it is, why mm-hmm. can't we do that here? What's your answer to these folks? Well, I think that. When I look at the overall system that we have here, we do do better in some arenas. 
I mean, we, you're in the field of oncology. Our numbers are much better here in America, to my understanding, than what they're getting out of England, say, or um, what they're getting out of Canada for treatment. The wait times in some of those countries are tremendously high. Um, if we had a, a medical landscape where we did have transparency and we could pare down the costs to like the lowest dollar value, maybe a Medicare for all would work. But right now there's a bunch of profiteers with their fingers in the pie. And if we institute a Medicare for all system, who do you think is going to run it? Yeah. It's going to be like Blue Cross, Blue Shield and United. Is it going to work any better? I mean, and I also kind of find it really funny because if you look at like the, the big, you know, the big healthcare improvement of our, of our last decade or so, you know, the Affordable Care Act, the Affordable Care Act was based on the model of insurance. Everyone must have insurance. Now all the same people who are clamoring for Medicare for all are clamoring, you can't have insurance. You know, you're going you're gonna to outlaw it. There's something very fundamentally wrong with that. It seems like a point of distrust. You know, in 2010, you were saying you must have insurance or we're going to give you a penalty. And now you're saying we're outlawing insurance. Something's really wrong there. Yeah. So I, I think that there's too many perverse incentives baked in the system as it currently exists. And I, I think that people are, it's a tiresome topic because it's really hard to see where the money's going and to, you know, figure out the, the trails of the profiteers. But until we do, I, I can't see a Medicare for all system working. In that position paper and, in a, and, and with what you're doing with your colleagues, what other, we talked about price transparency and so on. And I wanna, I wanna go back eventually, try to figure out uh, steps that you think we could take as a, as a medical society. What other aspects did you tackle that you feel strongly about? We talked about um, the, the need for like more direct models of care. And the ability, yes, yes. So like there's a model of primary care. I mean, good medical care is, the, the backbone should be good primary care. But, you know, we've gotten into this corporate medical model where physicians have seven to 10 minutes for a sick visit and they can't take care of their patient's needs during that time. Direct primary care doctors are physicians that, um, they, they just got rid of the insurance model. They don't take insurance. Like They're cash, a membership. Cash, cash for service? Well, it's a membership model. I mean, a lot of people hear about it and they think that it's um, that it's concierge medicine, which is different. Concierge medicine still works for insurance and works at exorbitant prices. Um, direct primary care, you know, think of it as you know, direct care for the middle class. I mean, it's usually runs, I think, an average of um, $75 per month to belong to a direct primary care practice. And you know, these direct primary care doctors, they love what they're doing. They have more time to spend with their patients because they're not dealing with all the insurance headaches. Many of them dispense medications at cost to their patients. So the patients are saving money on their medications. They don't have all the bills that come from the pharmacy benefit managers. They are um, working usually with like an imaging center so that they can get reasonably priced imaging. They're usually working with local labs so that they can, you know, when laboratory studies are necessary, they can, they can take care of that. They have unobstructed visits, same day sick visits, and they work really hard to keep their patients out of the ER and out of the hospital. So overall, it, it tends to be a big, you know, money saver. Um, the 
one of the problems is that the direct primary care doctors always advocate make sure that you have insurance in case a giant catastrophe happens because you can't always keep someone out of the hospital like you said earlier in this podcast you know what if you have a heart attack what if you're in a giant you know motor vehicle accident but um, they advocate for more what I would call actually true insurance. We should stop calling insurance insurance because it's really just a bloated third-party payer right now. But but for direct primary care, like I could understand, for example, um, the you know the benefit of seeing my primary care physician, having access to him or her, um, and you know not having to go through the middleman. But but as a primary care physician, you still have to do blood tests. You may want to do a chest X-ray, a urinalysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, like uh, you may need to do or a mammogram, a pap smear, all of these things that you have to recommend and do. And, and are you able still to cut on the cost of these? These are outpatient stuff, but you still have to do mm-hmm. them. And some of them you're not in control over. So how, like, I'm trying to think how the system that works in a way that really reduces the cost to patients. Well, they, they usually do their own um, negotiating on behalf of their patients with the laboratory services and with the imaging services. And they're able to get like reduced prices. So, you know, you all think, I mean, I guess most of America thinks their insurance company is, is negotiating on their behalf. These guys oh. really are. They're not, you know, but insurance these guys company really is, are. the insurance company is behaving on the insurance company's behalf. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, you know, the DPC docs tend to be physicians who, you know, they just decided like, we're, we're tired of the system. We're making a break. And a lot of them actually report they're far happier because, you know, they're not dealing with all of these headaches that are you know, behind the scenes and their patients are happier and their patients are happy because they're saving money. Do we have any stats? Like, you know, how many, um, physicians are in direct primary care. We don't have that. I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm so underprepared for this podcast. I'm no, sorry. no, but this, is, this, is, this, is, this is a casual conversation. You don't have to have answers to any of this, by the way. Yeah. So one of our, uh, one of our members of free to care is called a DPC action. And I think there's something called DPC tracker. I yeah, think yeah. at the last check, I think it was a couple thousand, um, practices but it is really growing by leap and by bounds i know a couple of friends yeah. who actually shifted to that um and uh, it's actually a topic i would like to dedicate a full uh, podcast for at some point because i'm very curious about the model and, and how it works i kind of feel like i'm trying to think the direct um, the dpc physician goes to the lab for example and the radiology center and says i would like to get a a deal for mammograms, I guess, or something like I, I'm trying to think how the system works. I presume. Like- yeah, I think you should do a deep dive and I can connect I you to some really great DPC. There's 1200 in the United States. Oh, that's great. Now, we'll and talk- actually, it's interesting because there's starting to be there's a woman in California, Diana Gurnita. She's a rheumatologist and she's starting a, a group of direct pay um, specialty practices. You yeah. know, there's there's people that are like finding ways around the system. There's a member of free to care is called uh, Uber Docs. Uh, Paula Muto is a general surgeon, and you know she's frustrated that patients can't get in to be seen when they need to be seen. So she's working with physicians around the country of you know, specialists and primary care practitioners that are saving a few appointments per week. And if you know a patient needs to be seen by a GI doc, she's got a bunch of GI docs around the country, and you know the patient can 
get in. They pay a cash price to get in, but they're not waiting an unwieldy amount of time to get in with a specialist. I mean, the wait has become, you know, long for specialists. It's crazy. Yeah. Okay, so we talked about price transparency and hospitals. We talked about direct primary care and kind of cutting a little bit of some of the, the waste. Um, any other items that you feel passionate about and you're working on uh, as you uh, contemplate the changes yeah. that you have influence in? Yeah, so um, one of the big areas that I've done a lot of advocacy in is the um, the pharmaceutical and the uh, supply middlemen. Um, the pharmacy benefit managers are the people who administrate the pharmacy benefits on behalf of the insurance companies. Uh, and then the group purchasing organizations are the people that write the contracts to get supplies into hospitals and nursing homes. And there's some concerns with both of these, these groups, the GPOs and the PBMs. Um, there's the consolidation that has happened, both vertical and horizontal. In the insurance world, the, um, the insurance companies have all tied themselves to a PBM. So for instance, you know, CVS Health is now owner of CVS Caremark and their owner of Aetna. So an insurance company tied together in a big conglomerate with the PBM and also owning a a pharmacy chain itself. There's so many conflicts of interest there. So uh, the PBMs themselves have special rules that uh, apply to them that don't seem to apply to others. We're back at the transparency issue here. Um, the pharmacy benefit managers, the three big ones, are make, taking up 85% of the prescription market in the United States. Three companies are controlling 85% of the prescriptions in the U.S. The PBMs. Who are, who are these PBMs? The three big ones are Optum, um, which is owned by United, uh, it, CVS Caremark, right. which is owned by CVS, and Express Scripts, which uh, Cigna bought a couple years ago. And it was astounding. Cigna actually... The PBMs are the cash cows for the insurance companies. Cigna vaulted from like number 55 on the Fortune 500 up to number 13 when they purchased Express Scripts. These these PBMs have designed all kinds of ways to mint money in a way. And they're getting caught, which is nice to see. So the PBMs are negotiating prices of the pharmaceutical drugs that patients need with the manufacturer. So they're... They're kind of like the they're working with uh, with the insurance companies to distribute the, to to dispense these drugs, but they're negotiating the prices with the manufacturer. No. Well, the manufacturer is allowed to pay the PBM. The PBM is the crafter of the formulary. Right. So you know, so for the general audience, the formulary is the list of medications that are covered by the insurance company and at what level. And the manufacturer is allowed to pay the PBM. So they call it a rebate, but functionally it's a kickback. And we know it's a kickback because it has an exemption from the anti-kickback statute, which they gained in <laughs> 2003. You know, so like they run around and they like to tell you it's not a kickback. And it's like, but wait, it has an exemption from the anti-kickback statute. Of course it's a kickback, right? And it's like a problem because if you think about it, it's not. So now you've crafted a situation in which your physician is not deciding what medication gets covered. You know, I guess the insurance company says, well, you can give many medication you want, 
but at the cost of most meds, people are going to pick the one that's covered. Isn't it like the same for hospitals? You know how sometimes you could be in the hospital, let's say you prescribe Prevacid and they say, no, it's Pravacid or like to Pravacid, no, it's Nexium. Like, isn't it similar in the hospital setting where the hospital formulary is usually based on whatever contracts they may have had with the manufacturer or is that different? The hospital formulary is put together by the group purchasing organization that the hospital contracts with. Yeah. And so group purchasing organizations, they were actually the first ones to get the right to legalize kickbacks. So they got those in 1987. So they do everything like in terms of supplies for the hospital. So we all should have seen this. I wrote an article last year that uh, the COVID unmasked the, you know, the GPO middlemen. I mean, wasn't it pretty obvious that our supply chain was broken last year? I mean, like when COVID came out and there was yeah. not enough masks. I mean, it was. I couldn't tell. I mean, to be honest, I couldn't tell how much of the masks issues and the PPEs was supply chain in all transparency or manufacturing. I, I couldn't really tell, uh, like for the supply chain. And I still can't tell, you know, in retrospect, because you would go to the grocery store or to Costco or wherever, and you still, I mean, you're able to get what you need. So part of the supply chain in that realm was actually working because you were getting all of these things. But then in the hospital setting, you were not getting what you need. And I, and I can't really, I couldn't tell was it really manufa- uh, you know, supply demand issue or supply chain or a combination of both. Well, but we had shortages before COVID. I mean, you're an oncologist. I'm sure yeah. you must have oh, yeah. read about the Vincristine shortages. Oh, I mean, there's like the United States has had shortages of injectable drugs and, and uh, other medications and solutions for the last 20 years or so. And they started soon after the GPOs got the right to their legalized kickbacks. So, so in 10 years, you think PBMs will still be alive and happy? In 10 years? Well, I hope they're not alive and happy, the ones that are currently leading the market. I hope that we have some transparency on the costs that that they're, you know, the way that they're driving costs for the patients. Um, I'll give you a small example. Like I said, that they've they found all kinds of ways of minting money. They have something called the spread. And in the spread, in the Medicaid, um, in the Medicaid realm and at each state level, the PBMs themselves are taking the money that they get paid to um, give to the pharmacies and they're keeping a portion of it for themselves. They got caught doing it to the tune of 225 million per year in Ohio alone. Um, Ohio has been really fabulous about that. Their attorney general, Dave Yost has been on these PBMs and other states are starting to follow suit. So they're like, they're looking under the chassis and discovering that, oh, wait, these guys are, <laughs> I mean, it's really almost like robbing us, right? Yeah. I mean, if you that 225 million is 225 million less that you have to take care of your Medicaid patients in other realms. It, it's obscene. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. So, so when, when you wrote them this, uh, when you wrote this position statement with you and your co-authors and you brought up these ideas, various areas, which we discussed some of these, mm-hmm. um, what was the reception like? And, and do you have any like feedback, whether the politicians, like who, whose attention did it get? Uh, and uh, what, what, yeah. was the, what happened afterwards? Um, I think a lot of patient organizations started paying attention. And then that's how, like, so when the paper got written, we, I, it wasn't, I wasn't thinking that a coalition was going to form. 
But then all of these groups came together and they said, yeah, we want to be a part of this. We're behind this paper. And so then we, you know, created the free to care website, which is um, just recently updated. It's free, the number two in care. Um, So the reception, I think, came first from patient and physician advocacy organizations who said, hey, we love this and, and we think this is a great paper. And now you're starting, we're starting to see that, you know, politicians are paying attention to and policy shapers are paying attention. I, I do have uh, meetings um, with lawmakers across the aisle. So there was a patient advocacy organization that's not even part of Free to Care. They're called We Work for Health. And they're extremely concerned about the, the PBM issue, for instance, because they know their patients are paying more for drugs. So these guys put me on phone calls with you know, the Pennsylvania Democratic Coalition and, you know, I've been on phone calls with the conservative members of Congress that are physicians. Um, people have introduced me to various members of even administration. I was able to go and speak with the White House of the last uh, administration on PBMs. And I had someone recently introduce me to um, a Biden nomination, the, the drug czar. He's a super guy. So I'm, I'm seeing that people are like, looking at these ideas and realizing they're not Republican ideas, they're not Democrat ideas, they're patient ideas. So people are paying attention. Um, it's, and it's, it, it's wonderful um, that we're, we're getting across the aisle attention. Thanks to your amazing work, we are. Have you, uh, on a personal note, I can't help but to ask you, have you thought about politics? <laughs> Yeah, I get asked that all the time. You knew that um, you knew that question was coming. Ah, uh, yeah. So um, I promised my children not until they're out of high school, and then I told my husband he's allowed to veto it. And uh, so we'll we'll see where it goes. I would never say never, but I guess you know what? I honestly, I, I'll tell you this, not to interrupt, but I tell you, it's it's people like you that we need to be honest, who are, as long as you promise not to get corrupted once you, you get into politics, Marion. But but really, the problem is that a lot of these folks who are making policy in, in Washington, whether it's federal, state, wherever they are, um, I just don't think their heart is in the right place, to be honest. And your heart is in the right place. Oh, that's kind of you. You know what I really think happens to a lot of them in healthcare? They listen to what I call um, the convenient untruths. So like along come these, and, and you can see it. I, I have it sitting over here somewhere. I have a list of like the, um, the top 11 people that have donated to Congress over the last 20 years, and six of them are healthcare related. You know, and so it's, they want the system to keep on going like it is. They don't want it changed. I have a friend of mine uh, whose dad was, uh, you know, needed some uh, testing done because there was a, an abnormality on a chest X-ray and a CAT scan. And, you know, I mean, I was helping along the way, but it, it's fascinating where you have difficulty in scheduling, literally significant difficulty in scheduling. Then there's significant difficulty in follow-up from the physicians and the nurses after the schedule. Then the testing doesn't get done then it gets done, it needs to be redone again. And it's like all of this spiral thing. And she said uh, something that really resonated with me. She said, it's amazing how the healthcare system fails us at the time when we need it the most. 
And it's, it's really resonated because you've got us paying the premiums every month, right? Uh, and if you have to go and get any healthcare, you have the copay and the deductible and all of these additional costs that you do. And then when you really, really, really need, you've got the denials, the pre-authorization, then you have the inefficiencies of the system, the hospital lack of follow-up, the physician's lack of follow-up, they're too busy, they're tired, they can't keep up with everything. And it's a hot mess. It is a hot mess. Yeah. It's a hot mess. Maybe that should be the title of this episode, Healthcare Unfiltered, (laughs) Hot Mess. Uh, Any last thoughts uh, from you and... and, uh, Uh, I think, yes, I still think you need to run for office and I don't think your husband should be able to veto it because I think that uh, you, you would do a great, you would be great at it, to be honest. (laughs) You're kind. He's, he's a more of a private person than I am. And like, I I do believe like, you know, my marriage does come first. No, no, of course. I I, I was was kidding. I just feel that, uh, I just feel you bring a lot to the table from a policy perspective and a patient perspective that, uh, I mean, I've been following you for a while and you bring up so many good ideas. We haven't even talked about the MOC and all of that stuff that uh, they let oh, us. Oh, you, you need to put Wes on for that oh, one. But, need, so last, to... yeah, last words, I think like, hey, America and physicians, let's start paying attention to where your money's going in healthcare. You need to open the books. You need to demand that we cut the glut and you need to demand that we make everyone play by the same rules. We do those three things and the hot mess, we'll fix it. No, really, thank you so much, Marion. I, I think this has been a great enlightening episode and uh, I hope uh, folks listen to this episode and we're able to uh, to make a difference. I think there's a lot of stuff that we need to talk about as a, as a, as a, as a medical society, to be honest. Um, uh, maybe I, I think my last question, I promise I'll let you go. You've been very generous with your time and we're taping no, this okay. Labor Day, on Labor Day weekend. Yeah. My last question to you and we'll depart on that. Do you think other societies like the AMA, the other, the ACP, all of these societies that sometimes they ask us to pay dues and tuition, are they doing anything to help us? Well, they've been the primary voices in the room for the last 20 years. You make the call. (laughs) How's it been going? I think I got the hint. (laughs) I like that. Well, Dr. Marion Mass, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare and Food. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Okay, folks, thanks very much for listening. I appreciate your support and I appreciate you tuning in for this to this podcast episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed this discussion. I hope uh, it was thought-provoking. I hope that you realize that there are a lot of things we could do and we could do always all of these things together. Uh, visit my website, chadinabhan.com and check out my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and to the YouTube channel. Don't forget to refer colleagues and friends And of course, make sure that um, you write a brief review and give us the rating that you believe we deserve. Before I let you go, I want to make sure that you remember to let me know how I'm doing. You can always send a direct message to me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan uh, or to Shadi Nabhan OO at Outlook.com. And I'm going to leave you with a saying by Isaac Newton. To every action, there's always opposed and equal reaction. Until next time, take care.